The following statement is from a paparazzi who claims to have witnessed Hulu's reality TV house party. All right, so here's some Bravo drama. I catch Melissa Gorga going from her hotel to this party in Beverly Hills, and the first thing I see when I get there is Jax Taylor leaving. They say he got into some argument with Captain Lee over their social media feud, or could have been a beef with James Kennedy. Whatever, I got the shot. Reality or not, we'll never know. What we do know, Hulu has reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. What made Vincent van Gogh one of the greatest painters and most tortured souls of all time? Was Harry Houdini predestined to become the great escape artist based on his family's great escape? I'm Dr. Gail Saltz, and on my new podcast, Personology, I'll be joined by amazing experts to delve into the minds of famous historical figures. If you want to know what really made exceptional people tick, then take a listen to Personology. Listen to Personology every Monday on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a quick warning before we get started. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. The whole neighborhood was deathly quiet and dark. This part of our story takes place in the late 80s in a sleepy bedroom community in the Midwest. It was kind of eerie because typically in that neighborhood there's multiple street lights, people's lights on on their front porches and so on. There was none of that. Steve Smith was a captain of the local police department. And that night around 2 a.m., he was awoken by a call from the communications center. Something unusual had happened out in a subdivision, and he needed to get out there quick. He was met by now-retired Sergeant Rusty James. It was really eerie because it knocked the streetlights and everything out in the area, and everywhere you walked, it crunched. And there was the the strong smell of uh, the dynamite and burnt flesh in the air. Rusty and his partner, Sarah Vogelsberg, had been the first to arrive that night. As I pulled up, uh, there was still smoke in the air, and a neighbor came over and told me that that, uh, he had found where it occurred. It was at the swimming pool for a residential area there. In the early morning hours, someone had parked their car in the lot next to the swimming pool and proceeded to blow themselves up. He said, Officer, I think that's a head laying over on the sidewalk over there, but I'm not going to check. I said, no, just going back. The crime scene was bizarre and gruesome. I mean, it's hard enough to hear about something like this, let alone experience it. We were trying to figure out where this young man was because we knew where his head was, but there wasn't anything else. And so we started looking around flashlights, and there was one leg from the knee down in a tree. We probably didn't locate more than about 40, maybe 50 pounds of identifiable body parts because they were spread out throughout the neighborhood and the woods close by. It was pretty horrific. Essentially, from his knees to his neck, he was just gone. When I first started reporting the story five years ago, there really wasn't a lot of information about the book Hitman, which just led to a lot of questions. Most of all, why would this author, a woman who claims she never owned a gun, write a how-to guide on killing people? getting away with it. I figured there had to be a story behind this book of nonfiction. And turns out, there is. And it's stranger than fiction. 
This is the story of who I believe to be the real Rex Farrell. Not the woman who apparently wrote the book, but the man who may have inspired it, or been inspired by it. A man who left an extraordinary amount of wreckage in his wake, like an explosion on a quiet night in a small Midwestern town. From iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media, I'm Jasmine Morris, and this is Hitman. Just the whole circumstance was uh, one of those things that bothered me for some time. And now, you know, I've gotten past that, but it involved uh, psychologists and many trips to them to get past that to where I, where I would even answer a call in that area. I wouldn't even drive there. When I first reached out to Steve and Rusty, they were both pretty surprised. It'd been 25 years since this explosion happened. But as soon as I called... It kind of all came flooding back in, and uh, I remembered almost like it had just occurred within, you know, the last day or two. First responders see a lot of trauma. But when talking to these guys, especially Rusty, I mean, this was on a whole other level. I asked him if he was sure he even wanted to go through with the interview. You have to understand, that incident was a little traumatic on me. This was the days before you got post-traumatic stress assistance or anything, and with me and Sarah, when we showed weakness over this, which we did, I don't consider it weakness, but everybody else did. Really, just imagine that day. It's a tight-knit community, so when officers arrived, they recognized the car involved immediately. They knew who the victim was, a 16-year-old named Gregory. His car, the hood was blown off of it, and as we you know, walked around the area, we ended up finding some of his dismembered body parts. In the front seat of his car was a boombox with a cassette tape in it that Gregory would have been listening to. He was not a bad kid, but he was just somebody that we had our eyes on. We had a couple run-ins with him, and uh, but again, not a bad kid. But uh, he was very familiar to us out and about in the community at odd hours for somebody his age. Steve and I, you know, we had had heart-to-heart talks with Greg, trying to get him straightened up, you know. know, We tried to do what we could for him and tried to keep him out of trouble and, you know, protect him from himself. Steve and Rusty both said it sort of looked like an accident. What he did was he touched the blasting cap uh, that was attached to the dynamite. He didn't quite understand how dynamite works, I don't believe. He touched the blasting cap on the battery terminals of his car, and that was it. So he drove the car out with dynamite, but what was he hoping to do with it? You know, we, we really don't know. And the only two people that really know are no longer here, <laughs> you know, so. Who is the other person? That would be the mom's boyfriend. I don't know if that was his, if his name or not, but I do remember the name Rex. Rex. I mean, when I first heard that, you can imagine my reaction. It's probably the same one you're having. Ultimately, the teen's death was ruled a suicide. 
but the investigation had just begun. Well, anytime somebody blows himself up with dynamite, I would call it suspicious. Steve's first order of business was to try to figure out where this dynamite came from. So they reached out to local businesses and other police departments to see if any construction sites had been robbed. Eventually, in our investigation, located a empty box that had uh, some identifiers on it. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Farms did the follow-up on that to figure out where it came from. Whatever they found, they, they linked it back to a construction site burglary, and I can't remember for sure where it was. But it didn't help us in trying to identify anything about the story with the uh, way it occurred, why it occurred, and so on. So detectives started asking around, interviewing people who knew Greg. That's when they discovered the boyfriend, Rex Reed. And we uh, tried to identify Rex Reed, but we couldn't find any driver's license or anything that would match up with uh, the description as far as you know, height, weight, age, and so on of this guy. Um, thought that was kind of odd, plus... If I remember correctly, Rex Reed was the name of a character in a TV show. There's a renowned American film critic, an occasional actor, named Rex Reed. It was definitely not that Rex Reed. When you can't identify somebody and they've got some TV name, it kind of raises a flag. So detectives had a name, or an alias, and a lot of questions. Steve says they were discouraged from making contact with Greg's mother until after his funeral. But Rex was there for all of it, even when they notified Greg's mom about what had happened to her son. I just remember that, you know, he was close to her uh, being supportive in those things. He didn't want to talk to anybody, but he made it look like he was a stand-up guy at the end and was there for the mom at the funeral and all that. And then at, right after the funeral, he was gone. But eventually, after speaking with Greg's mom and some of his friends, they started to learn more. You know, Greg really didn't have a father figure. And I think Rex came into the picture and, you know, he was doing the karate stuff. This guy, Rex Reed, supposedly had a black belt in karate. He and Rex had become close. He liked being around Rex. And I'm sure it's because of just the, his attitude and he was a guy that didn't take any crap off anybody. And I believe that Greg was looking for anything at that time and, and Rex certainly fit the bill. And the fact that this guy was a little bit uh, different than most, you know, dads or boyfriends or whatever, uh, I think was attractive to him that this guy's, you know, out there living on the edge and, you know, he's really cool. And I think that uh, Greg may have been trying to emulate some of those things. Detectives determined the dynamite that Greg had used that had been stolen from a construction site had been taken by this boyfriend, Rex, or both Rex and Greg. But other than that, they had no idea why the dynamite was stolen, let alone who this guy really was. We never identified like, you know, he was came here for a job or he had family in the area or anything like that. He seemed to be uh, a loner. People told us that they didn't know who he really was anyway, but they just said that Rex Reed was a bad guy and that if anybody tried to mess with them, that you guys will never take him alive and, you know, some officers might get hurt in the process. Greg's friends literally warned them about this guy from the very beginning. We were aggressive. If somebody needed to be found, we were going to find him. And Steve Smith is a, a great detective. He put a lot of time in on this case because we wanted that guy. He was obviously good at concealing his identity. He literally just kind of fell off the face of the earth. 
Eventually, the hunt for Rex led them to a boarding house where he'd been staying, about 30 minutes away. We went to the house, made contact with the lady there, told her what was going on. She told me that Rex had disappeared the day before. She said, and we asked, you know, if he was going to be back. She knew anything. She says, no, I think he's gone. He cleared out his room. And they asked her for her permission to search his room. In the trash can, we located what turned out to be a driver's license had been cut up into 50, 60 little tiny pieces that one of the detectives, uh, Alan Harris, very methodically put back together. And then when he had it back together where he could get a name and a date of birth, he entered that in the computer and we immediately got an NCIC hit. NCIC stands for the National Crime Information Center. They learned this guy, who went by the name Rex Reed, had several warrants out of the state of Florida for a variety of serious felony crimes. And in order to protect the identity of the woman who I believe wrote Hitman, we're going to obscure his real name at times and call him by one of his aliases at others, Randall Wayne Phelps. And we did the computer work, and lo and behold, there he was. The federal fugitive. Sometimes you'll hear Stephen Rusty call this guy Rex, because that's what they initially knew him as. And it would be 32 years before they finally learned the whole truth about him. All while reporting this story, I've talked to dozens of people who know a thing or two about a thing or two. But no one I've talked to knows the entire story, including Stephen Rusty. They'd never even heard of Hitman until I called. And then I told Rusty and Steve the book was linked to a triple murder. Did you know that? No, I did not know that until you had mentioned it. And then I yeah. got online and started looking at things and saw it. And I thought, well, no great big giant surprise that uh, he would author a book and somebody would think that would be the manual to go about doing bad things to good people. Even now, I keep finding new things. Just this week, as I was writing this episode, I stumbled onto a passage in Hitman I didn't remember seeing before, probably because it wasn't relevant until now. Rex Farrell says, quote, Dynamite is nice and can be picked up from many building sites or roads under construction. But during storage, the sticks have to be turned over regularly to prevent settling of the nitro, and the blasting caps necessary to make it go off are so tricky that just by walking across the carpet, enough static electricity could be created to blow you away. As I said in the beginning, unless you know what you are doing, stay away from requests for this type of extermination, or the life you take may be your own. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, I'm going to take a moment to tell you a little story about the night before my wedding, when I decided I'd color my hair. You know, add some shine before the big day. I bought a box kit of hair dye from the store. An hour later, I had red hair. Not the beautiful, natural kind. The fire engine red kind. In a panic, I ran to a drugstore down the street to look for another box of hair dye that might fix the problem. It was pouring rain. I was soaked. Rehearsal dinner was in 40 minutes. And I had red hair. Not good. I did find a color to cover it, but that was after using two boxes of hair dye that left my eyes burning from ammonia and other nasty chemicals. The moral of this story, don't do what I did. Check out Madison Reed, at-home hair color made with ingredients that you can feel good about. No ammonia, no parabens, no PPD, and it works. 
Get ammonia-free, multi-tonal hair color delivered to your door for less than $25 at madison-reed.com. Use promo code HITMAN and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Again, that's promo code HITMAN. Hey listeners, I'm going to take a moment to tell you a little story about the night before my wedding, when I decided I'd color my hair. You know, add some shine before the big day. I bought a box kit of hair dye from the store. An hour later, I had red hair. Not the beautiful, natural kind. The fire engine red kind. In a panic, I ran to a drugstore down the street to look for another box of hair dye that might fix the problem. It was pouring rain. I was soaked. Rehearsal dinner was in 40 minutes. And I had red hair. Not good. I did find a color to cover it, but that was after using two boxes of hair dye that left my eyes burning from ammonia and other nasty chemicals. The moral of this story, don't do what I did. Check out Madison Reed, at-home hair color made with ingredients that you can feel good about. No ammonia, no parabens, no PPD, and it works. Get ammonia-free, multi-tonal hair color delivered to your door for less than $25 at madison-reed.com. Use promo code HITMAN and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Again, that's promo code HITMAN. I truly thought I'd reached the end of the Rex Farrell story. I learned it was a woman, now a grandmother in her 70s, who originally wrote a book of fiction and wanted it pulled after it was associated with the triple murder in Maryland. But then, late one night, I decided to just plug a few names and dates I had into some archives. And there it was. The story I knew had to be there. I mean, I've had some similar moments of discovery while making this podcast, but this was where I uncovered something huge. A part of this story that literally no one, not even Tiffany Horn, Bob Dean, Howard Siegel, I mean, no one knew about. And the more I read, the more I found about this guy, Randall Wayne Phelps, the more I really began to understand the genesis of this book. Remember what the author said to Paladin editor Virginia Thomas? By the way, in answer to your question and that of Mr. Lund, I get my materials from books, television, movies, newspapers, police officers, my karate instructor. Back in the early 80s, right around the time Hitman was written, Phelps was training to be a police officer in Florida. I got his personnel records and was able to learn a little bit more about him. Apparently, he was 5'10 and weighed 140 pounds. He was a U.S. citizen and was engaged to be married, I assume to the woman who I've been told authored Hitman, because the emergency contact listed on his new hire payroll notice and the first name listed in his personal references, that same name. Anyway, according to his application for employment, he says he got his GED and attended community college in the 70s. And in his employment record, he says he was a carpet installation mechanic and converted to a carpet salesman in 1981. He goes on to say, During this time, I have also taught classes in self-defense and martial arts to perfect and maintain my skills for personal enjoyment and for additional income. Again, our Rex Farrell actor. He cites his 15 years of experience as a fifth-degree black belt karate instructor as a skill or qualification that would make him fit for the role. I hold belts in five styles, the last being my own style, American combat karate, which is the layman's no-nonsense approach to self-defense and street fighting. 
As grand master of this style, I've taught many law enforcement officers. He goes on to list several local police departments and a narcotics squad, saying, Law enforcement agencies have always received training from me at no charge as a public service. A public affairs officer from this department told us that back then, the field training would have involved riding in a patrol car with an officer for a few days. And so there's a couple evaluation reports in these files. At the time his final evaluation report was issued, he was on probation and had been training for five and a half months. This report gives him an overall performance grade of not satisfactory, especially in the categories of public relations, knowledge of work, work judgments, job skill level, quality of work, accepts direction, physical limitations, job attitude, etc. The field training officer giving this evaluation elaborates in the comments section by saying, quote, two lacks in confronting suspects, traffic violation, and field safety. Example, standing in traffic while issuing traffic summons. Hair length needs some attention. Tends to be cold and indifferent to people and their problems. Cold and indifferent to coworkers. Does not mingle into group. This comment section wasn't big enough. The evaluation continues onto an additional sheet of paper, going on to say things like, Recruit is very slow in writing reports and has many spelling mistakes. Recruit does assign tasks, but acts as if he's bored stiff doing them. Very slow to accept changes and wants a detailed explanation for the changes. Cannot control interviews with irate persons and tends to become flustered and confused as to what actions to take. Apparently, Phelps was colorblind, and he kept reading maps wrong, getting confused and ending up in the wrong area. The evaluation says he has, quote, very poor driving habits, and kept nearly getting into accidents. And then there's this comment, quote, has told this FTO he is only interested in major cases, especially drug pushers, and he has his own definite opinion as to how they should be treated. Remember that. This evaluation goes on and on. There are 29 different comments. Again, retired Captain Steve Smith. He didn't last very long. I think uh, they got suspicious of his integrity. Phelps' resignation letter, dated June 1, 1982, reads, I find that I disagree with many of the practices and techniques advocated in my training period. I'm unwilling to compromise my views on the duties of a police officer as a public servant. I wish to be free to offer my services elsewhere. It was a short time after that that uh, I believe him and his companions started doing the drug uh, dealer ripoffs. So I'm going to tell you about this book I found. Sounds familiar. But I'm talking about the other book Rex Farrell wrote. It looks like a comic book or a silly pulp novel. Same as Hitman. The cover is orange, and there's a masked man bursting into the room with a machine gun. He surprised two guys. They're jumping up from a table covered in money and drugs and open cans of beer. The book's title is just as ridiculous. It's called How to Rip Off a Drug Dealer. And it was published in 1984 by Paladin. In the first chapter, Farrell writes... Ripping off or stealing the merchandise of drug dealers can be a very profitable business. 
Among the outlaws who grow, import, and manufacture these illegal substances for distribution, there exists the law of the jungle, survival of the strongest. Any outlaw who can outthink, outmaneuver, or outfox any other outlaw is entitled to the bounty he appropriates. The author pitched this book before Hitman was even released. In her deposition, Paladin editor Virginia Thomas recounted something the author wrote in a letter. I'm anxious that Rex Savage establish himself with Paladin readers as a top-quality writer who knows his stuff. I have ideas for additional books, which we touched on briefly during our last phone conversation. And again, that's our actor reading the author's words. I should have the first two chapters on popping drug dealers ready to send to you soon. I think it will be better than The Hitman. It is, in a weird way, better than Hitman. Some of the hard-boiled fantasy has been stripped away, and most of the book is straightforward, practical, actionable. How to assemble a team, how to train them, how to storm a room, how to dispose of the merchandise. Actually, it's pretty scary, the level of sophistication laid out in the book. The equipment and tactics are all military-grade. Two-way radios, bulletproof vests, and infrared scopes. Rex Farrell advises to use a fully automatic Mac 10 which would later fall under the 1994 assault weapons ban, and devotes a whole chapter to marksmanship, too. Of course, this being a Rex Farrell book, there are totally absurd moments, like the long passage about why dressing up as a woman is the perfect disguise. You will need a method for very close removal of facial and maybe even leg hair in order to effectively portray a woman. Get your wife or girlfriend to help you select some inexpensive makeup. Then practice applying the makeup until you achieve a natural look. Women's magazines tell you how. You don't want to appear clownish or garish. You want your target to really think that you are female. He suggests picking up, quote, hard plastic breasts with nipples and other novelty items from party shops to complete the look. And he consoles the reader. So, while you stand in front of the mirror feeling just a little bit queer, keep in mind why you are playing in makeup. If it bothers your macho self-image so you can't sleep at night, instead of counting sheep, try counting stacks of $100 bills. The book How to Rip Off a Drug Dealer is dedicated to this guy. And, quote, to men of courage everywhere who dare to take a chance, and to all those outlaws I dare not mention by name. Outlaw. There's a lot of hyperbole in these two books, but this is a detail that is not an exaggeration. Because Phelps apparently wasn't just ripping off dealers, he was doing it while pretending to be a cop. There's a whole section on how to do this in the book. It's called The Police Assault. This method of entry is probably the safest and most profitable of all for the serious and well-equipped team. It consists of entering the location by flashing seemingly legitimate police credentials and making the mark think he is under arrest. If handled correctly, the entire procedure will go smoothly, and one job will possibly lead to future jobs without resistance or violence. This method requires one special skill, says Rex. Uh, at least one of the inside men should be capable of playing the part of a seasoned, knowledgeable, hardened cop. Randall Wayne Phelps, of course, had been training to be a police officer. 
Maybe he was better at playing a cop than he was at being a cop. So Phelps resigned from the police department in 1983, started ripping off drug dealers the following year, and then the explosion happened three years later. So when Rusty and Steve started investigating that explosion, Phelps had already been on the run from the feds. An investigator for a state's attorney's office in Florida actually hopped on a plane as soon as he heard about the explosion Steve was investigating. The guy's name was Ed Boone. His nickname was Boomer, and he had a very booming voice, so it was appropriate. I tried to reach Ed Boone. Unfortunately, he died in 2014. Ed Boone ended up telling us that had been involved in a number of crimes where they were ripping off drug dealers, uh, acting like they were the police. They would do their search warrant, supposedly, and confiscate the drugs and money. They would just tell the bad guys that somebody will notify you when the warrant's issued and we'll be back to pick you up on that. If you're a, a, a drug suspect and the police never call you or show up again, you just kind of figure you skated and nothing else is going to go on. It's kind of a perfect crime. I mean, it sounds like that idea could actually work. But like James Perry, they messed up. They did make a mistake and hit a house that wasn't a drug house. I found a newspaper article from December 1984 that says three men, Phelps's co-conspirators, were found guilty of imprisoning two families and robbing their homes while posing as federal drug agents. The unsuspecting families inquired. And these people ended up calling the police later to find out you know, the circumstances and why they got targeted. And all of a sudden, um, the Florida law enforcement agency started putting two and two together that this was people out acting like they were police ripping off drug dealers. According to that article I found about the robbery that went wrong, police found the book How to Rip Off a Drug Dealer in their possession. These men were convicted of two counts of kidnapping, two counts of false imprisonment, two counts of armed robbery, two counts of burglary, two counts of grand theft, two counts of conspiracy, and eight counts of carrying a firearm during the commission of a felony. Phelps, on the other hand. He'd kind of just disappeared into the wind, uh, kind of like he did after we started looking for him. So these three guys got arrested, Phelps was on the run, but then I found this. Another article from March 1985 said a 36-year-old woman had been arrested after providing fake Drug Enforcement Administration identification and warrants to the three men who committed the robbery. According to the arrest warrant and sworn testimony from one of those three men, she typed these false warrants and IDs in her home. She'd been charged with two counts each of conspiracy to commit a robbery with a firearm and conspiracy to commit a burglary of a dwelling in which an assault or battery occurred. So while Phelps got away, his girlfriend, or fiancé, was being held accountable for her part in this crime. This woman's name? Once again, the same one I believe to be the author of Hitman. This article even says this woman calls herself a writer. Phelps went by several names, and while he was a federal fugitive, some of the aliases popped up over the years in other states. At one point, in August 1984, after the robbery, he was arrested in Florida after his car broke down. According to the booking report, the officer says while on patrol, he saw a tan jeep off to the side of the road with the hood open. He pulled up behind the jeep and started running the Texas tags. 
He said he saw a white male, approximately 5'9 and 145 to 150 pounds, leaning in the Jeep on the passenger side. He had his hands in the vehicle. He kept looking back at the officer and back into the Jeep. He did this about six times. There was another man with him. The officer says, We were on a dark road, and due to the suspicious furtive movement made, and for fear of my safety, I took a survey look into the vehicle to make sure there was no one else in the Jeep to do me harm. When I did, I observed a light-colored green shirt wrapped tightly around what outlined a gun on the front seat where the person had been bent over. The officer says earlier that night he heard over his police radio that two people had held up a 7-Eleven, and one of them had a green shirt wrapped around his hand to indicate he had a gun. The officer then discovered they had a duffel bag filled with holsters and other guns, handcuffs, a blue light, two badges, cans that looked like tear gas, clips and ammo, and two items that looked like silencers. There was also a large amount of marijuana next to this bag. This is kind of our only moment seeing Phelps up close. Well, aside from his police evaluation. Ed Boone, Steve Smith, Rusty James, they were always right behind him. But this officer actually interacts with him, even though he has no idea who he's dealing with. Literally. As he handed the officer his license, his real license with his real name, the officer saw another ID underneath it. For Randall Wayne Phelps, this is where we learned of that alias. When the officer asked him why he had two Florida IDs, Phelps said he got the driver's license with that name so he could write a book. After he was arrested and charged with carrying a concealed firearm in possession of marijuana, Phelps made bail and went on the run again. Do you know how long he was actually on the run for and all? It seems like initially six or eight years on the front end, and then after we tried to locate him, it was another six to nine years, I think, before he met his demise. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Boost Mobile. Want to solve the case of your slow, frustrating, and excruciatingly painful network? Here's a clue. Step up with Boost Mobile. Boost Mobile has a super reliable, super fast network, so you can stay connected almost anywhere. And when you switch, you get four lines for $25 per line per month with unlimited data and four free Samsung Galaxy A20 phones. Perfect for keeping everyone in your family happy. Boost Mobile plans also include mobile hotspot, unlimited music streaming, and no annual service contract. So don't settle for the crime of an agonizingly slow and painful network. Step up with Boost Mobile today. Limited time offer while supplies last. New customers only. Requires port and activation from eligible carrier. One free device per line. Users using more than 35 gigabytes of data during a billing cycle may be deprioritized during times of network congestion. Offers and coverage not available everywhere. See BoostMobile.com or retailer for full details. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some, some years that were, were 
just really high risk, unnecessarily so. And a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. There are a ton of illustrations and photos in How to Rip Off a Drug Dealer, but there are two that I keep coming back to. There's a shot of a falsified DEA ID. The man in the photo looks big, strong. He's wearing what's obviously a fake mustache and a wig. But am I looking at Phelps? I still haven't been able to locate his mugshot. And then there's another, which is just so disturbing. It's in the section about interrogation techniques, about using a blade to get someone to talk. A young woman lies on the ground, her hands bound. A masked man kneels above her. He's got a handful of her hair and a knife to her throat. Who is that man? Is that Phelps? Who's the woman? Phelps was like this aberration, a ghost that would cause harm and then disappear. After all these robberies and after the explosion, he'd somehow gotten away every time. Steve eventually learned that Phelps had returned to Florida at some point. Ed Boone had given us the information about uh, his girlfriend in uh, Florida. He'd apparently gone back to his girlfriend, fiance, the one who I think wrote Hitman, who at the time had two children, including a teenage son. And Ed was going to pursue that a little bit more when he got back to Florida to see if uh, he started getting mail at her house or showed up at her house. And then, one day, Steve's phone rang. It was Ed Boone. When I answered, he just said, we got him. And I knew it was Boomer, and so I knew he had to be talking about He told me that uh, they had him, but uh, he was in a box, and that his girlfriend's son shot and killed You know, he had evidently been back there living again, and they had had another one of their fights. And evidently, when it became physical... Um, this uh, young man decided that this guy wasn't going to hurt his mom anymore and shot and killed him. That's how I found out that we didn't need to be looking for him anymore. This happened just two weeks after Millie, Trevor, and Janice were murdered. A local newspaper article from this time says the young man who shot Phelps was 15 years old and that Phelps died after being shot in the head. This all happened in the family's living room. I was shocked. No wonder she's never wanted to talk about this. Her teenage son shot her fugitive boyfriend right in front of her. The 15-year-old was arrested on an open count of murder. We also reached out to him for this podcast and got no response. Authorities also discovered a meth lab in a shed behind the house that they described as one of the more elaborate labs they'd seen. Sheriff's deputies believed Phelps built and operated the lab. So he'd gone from ripping off drug dealers to becoming one, apparently. An officer from the same police department Phelps was kicked out of said when he learned Phelps had been killed, he wasn't terribly surprised. He called him extremely deadly. Rusty remembers getting the call. I just said, hey, who says there's no justice, you know? He was a bad man. He was a bad guy. 
Do you know anything about that girlfriend in Florida? Nothing other than her, than uh, I believe her son did the right thing. I think the kid, he had a lot of courage, and I won't say I was happy, but I was glad that he was not going to be a threat to anyone else. I can't say that I was sad about it. It was like, good, he's off the street. He can't hurt anybody else or disrupt any other family's lives. But there's one more question that keeps nagging at me. We know Phelps started ripping off drug dealers after the second book was written. But what about the first book? Was Rex a hitman? Now, I, I don't think we'll ever know, but I'd say that there's a good probability. Of course, if we, every department had a cold case squad, they could go back and look at the things in those books and then compare them with what they have. I think they may be able to find some things like that. But uh, that's a luxury most departments don't have. The stories I've told you about in this podcast could just be the ones we know about. Hitman and How to Rip Off a Drug Dealer might be the so-called blueprints for other crimes committed by Phelps himself or others. I mean, the book's just a book, obviously. But what's so crazy about all of this is that it seems like there was a real Rex Farrell. Maybe he was the inspiration or the co-writer, or Phelps somehow morphed into this character. But that persona... The macho, rogue, dangerous maverick, he was real. And what else did Phelps do? We actually put in a Freedom of Information Act request into the FBI to try to get their files on Phelps. And just this morning, we got back a reply that said, please be advised that, quote, unusual circumstances apply to the processing of your request. Apparently, unusual circumstances could mean a couple different scenarios, like, quote, a need to search for, collect, and examine a voluminous amount of separate and distinct records. I have a feeling I'll be finding more and more well after this podcast ends. I mean, we started this story talking about this book, written by a so-called hitman himself, and then a triple murder, and then we discovered the author was actually a woman. But wait, there was also a man who seemed to have embodied the book. We've spent a lot of time with these wrongdoers, Randall Wayne Phelps, Lawrence Horn, James Perry. For some, Peter Lund, although maybe that's not fair. But anyway, we've spent time with these guys because we've had to. But this is where it all ends, with the people who really propelled and compelled me to tell this story. The survivors. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I wanted to touch base with you and see how things are going. I kept Tiffany Horn updated on everything I learned over the last two years or so. Every Motown interview, every lawyer I got back in touch with, but also every strange new twist I uncovered about the book and the story behind it. I was sort of driven to get to the bottom of this, in part for her, because she'd given me so much of her time. And meanwhile, Tiffany had to go on her own journey for closure, including a prison visit. With her dad. There were so many demons and so many things that I had been battling, so much rage that I had had that had been building inside me. It was important for me to, to let that go and to face him. I wanted to really settle with him and look him in his eye and also just see my dad again. Like I wanted to be that little girl that I used to be and just look at him that way instead of as this monster. That's next on Hitman. 
Hitman is a production of iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. It's produced and reported by me, Jasmine Morris. Our supervising producer is Michelle Lance. Mark Lotto is our story consultant. Executive producers are Mangesh Hatikador and me. Mixing by Michelle Lance and Josh Rogeson. Our fact checker is Natsumi Ajisaka. Voice acting by Levi Petrie and Callie Jane Farnsworth. Our theme song by Elise McCoy and additional music written and produced by the students at Dime, powered by the Detroit Institute of Music Education. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea, immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what resounds and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. Subscribe now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so, and a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts.